Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Today is kind of a bucket list interview for me. I'm talking to George Will, who has just published a book called The Conservative Sensibility. And we're having this conversation in the context of the news of the day where the New York Times has written a massive front page hit piece on, on the way that a particular guy curates his news on YouTube. And is this a path towards radicalization, towards the alt-right? And all of the sort of politically correct speech police type narrative we're hearing today. And it, it's interesting to me that the New York Times, the most legacy of legacy media outlets, the place where you were forced back in the day to get your opinion and to get your ideas and dictated to from the top down by the very smart people at the editorial page of the New York Times, that they're now going after social media, which has democratized and, and de decentralized the way that we curate content, places like YouTube, which, which is epicenter to that revolution. So part of it is what we talk about with George Will in the context of public choice theory and James Buchanan, where, where uh, special interests, establishment media in this case, are using their platform to go after the competition. But I think there's a bigger problem because both the New York Times and YouTube and Google and Facebook, fill in the blank, whatever it is, um, they are clearly part of the woke culture. They think that you can actually d decide what is good speech and bad speech. The most noxious, noxious version of that, and George Will's book is actually an, an antidote to that, is that they want to they take down historical content about, say, Nazis. So how do young people learn about how dangerous Nazism is, how dangerous Nazi Germany was, how, how fascism fed this idea that people didn't matter unless you can actually go back and learn your history? Because you're not going to get it from New York Times. You're not going to get it in school, but you could back in the day, like two weeks ago, get it on YouTube. You can't do that anymore. So part of what we have to do is learn history and understand how this stuff actually works in practice. How does fascism work in practice? How does socialism work in practice? And oh, by the way, if you're wondering why YouTube shouldn't ban certain videos, I confuse Nazi propaganda with KKK propaganda, a birth of a nation with, what's it called? Triumph of the Will. Triumph of the Will. I gotta go back and watch those movies again, and I probably can't because YouTube banned them. Okay, George Will, welcome to the show. Um, I have to say that uh, I've been reading your stuff as long as I've been in Washington, D.C., which has been a long time, and, and uh, that there was a time when, when your column was, was the only voice of reason in a town that, that was always dominated by, by what we call mainstream media now. So it's, it's, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for being here. Glad to be with you. I, uh, uh, maybe you'll appreciate this story. I bought your new book, The Conservative Sensibility, um, which uh, is really, I, I think it sort of ties the room together on all of the stuff you've been working on for a long time. Um, I, I feel like you're, you're trending a little more libertarian in your, in your mature years, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But you might appreciate the fact that I bought this in perhaps the most 
progressive bookstore in America, a place called Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> which is the epicenter. I'm surprised of, they they had it for sale. Uh, they they had several copies, and but it it took them a while to find yeah. it. it. But it's a very large bookstore. But um, if the epicenter of wokeness carries George Will's new book, um, maybe that's a sign of there's of, hope of hope of yes. hope. Um, I want to start with. Um, something that's not in the book, but perhaps related to it, um, you, you recently gave the, the commencement address at your alma mater, Princeton, and, and a number of students decided to protest you, and happily they didn't throw a milkshake at you or physically assault you as happens with conservatives mm -hmm. these days, but, but some people turned their backs. What was that all about? Well, I'm toxic for a number of reasons on campuses, too, for a minority, a small group. Uh, the principal one is that what I've written about Title IX and the spurious rape epidemic on campus. Yeah. The so-called one in five women in a four-year college experience will be sexually assaulted. <clears throat> a survey that even the people who took the survey say is being misused. And I said such provocative things as a woman can say no before sex. She can say no during sex. She can't say no six months later when she decides that she would have been assaulted. Uh, things like that, yeah. but uh, it um, comes to the territory. But it, it it's and and you've noted this. It's it's a little bit ironic that that Princeton graduate George Will is is so controversial that you have to turn turn your back. Um, but uh, Woodrow Wilson, of course, <laughs> yes. is wildly lionized um, still to this day. There's been attempts to sort of. Um, recognize his his history but but when not the so african-american students some african-american students at princeton uh <clears throat> became aware of his retrograde racial views first movie shown at the white house was shown by him it was birth of a nation he resegregated the nazi propaganda film <laughs> yeah he the rehabilitation of the ku klux klan is what it was and he um uh resegregated the federal workforce and all that uh, when they began their protest, I offered to Princeton to come there and teach them how to really comprehensively dislike Woodrow Wilson. But they didn't take you up. They did not. But did I, not. I have taught a freshman seminar last semester there on varieties of American conservatism, and it was uh, well-received. Yeah. You're, you're, you're not a fan of Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson? He's the first president to criticize the American founding, which he did not do peripherally. He did root and branch, attacking the constitutional architecture bequeathed by another Princetonian, James Madison, the separation of powers particularly, and the natural rights doctrine. Uh, Woodrow Wilson said, <clears throat> do not read the first two paragraphs of the Declaration, its 4th of July boilerplate. He said that uh, separation of powers was fine once when we were four million people thinly scattered along the fringe of a North American continent, 80% living within 20 miles of Atlantic tidewater. But now, he said, we're complex and continental. We have a nation united by steel rails and copper wire. Therefore, we need a more nimble government, a phrase he was fond of, one that can act with the sort of dispatch that depends upon really an emancipated executive. Besides, he said, what worried Madison was factions and the danger of majority tyranny of minorities, but modernity had brought about such a consensus about all the important questions of public life that that was no longer a worry. 
So we, we need a, a government as united as the public uh, supposedly was. The, um, <coughs> that, that sort of, that version of progressivism, this idea that, that we can sort of redesign from the top down and perfect man with, with science is, is the basis of, 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 of Hayek's critique of socialism. But, but you know, we're, we're having a sort of a resurgence of so-called democratic socialism, but I feel like the real enemy is <coughs> that, is that, that, that Wilsonian notion that, that these, you know, we, we can trust people in power and if we just put the smart people in power and, and they can redesign things and, as, as others have said, nudge us in the right direction, that's, that's, where, that's what we're really fighting today. Hayek was, and Wilson was not, an adherent of Kant's famous axiom that from the crooked timber of mankind, nothing straight shall ever be made. When Wilson <coughs> and the progressives generally um, began their surge of confidence in the, using the state to straighten us out. Science was in the air, literally in the air. Wright brothers, Marconi, Edison, Henry Ford. And the belief was that you could apply science to society if you had an, an elite, disinterested elite running the government. <clears throat> the idea of a disinterested state, which public choice theory has, I hope, retired, uh, was um, popular at the time. Uh, because in order to get advanced degrees in the second half of the 19th century, you really need to go to Germany. And in Germany, they acquired uh, a lot of American academics, including some who taught Thomas Woodrow Wilson as a student, at uh, graduate student at uh, Johns Hopkins. They acquired <coughs> belief in the Bismarckian state, infused with Hegelian sense of the unfolding history and all of that. So... Uh, the, the idea that the state was worrisome seemed anachronistic to them. You know, it's funny that the Hegelian aspect of that, I, I feel like uh, modern blood and soil conservatism, and I don't think you would mix those two words based on your definition of conservatism. I've, I feel <coughs> like sometimes I have a hard time telling between the technocratic left and uh, the technocratic right, except for perhaps identity stuff, but, yeah. but, the, but the project is the same. We're going to redesign things. Yes. The uh, blood and soil, throne and altar, European conservatism is one thing. There is a bridge, and that is Edmund Burke, who, from an Anglo-American point of view, was an anticipator of uh, Hayek's celebration of the spontaneous order of a free society. But in the phrase American conservatism, the adjective does a lot of work. And frankly, what it does is it says, as I say in my book, uh, American conservatives are the legatees of classical liberalism. And li classical liberalism was born in opposition to established things. <coughs> the basis of, Ameri <coughs> excuse me, of American exceptionalism is precisely that we, did not, we were born free, as Tocqueville said born free in the sense that we had no feudal past, hence no established church, hence no entrenched aristocracy. We had an exceptional revolution, one that did not promise to give us happiness, but to set us free to pursue it as we define it. We have an exceptional constitution, one that doesn't say what the government must do for us, but what the government may not do to us. 
and therefore <clears throat> Americans are exceptionally immune to the modern pessimism that life is an enormous arena of autonomous forces and that human agency is radically diminished. So you are you're staunchly in the America is an idea camp. Yes, I, I believe we are, a, as Lincoln said at Gettysburg, we're dedicated to a proposition. We're a creedal society. Margaret Thatcher put it very well. Uh, she was a great English woman. She'd been an even greater American woman. She said, uh, European nations were made by history. Uh, America was made by ideas, principally those we got from John Locke. Yeah. So you, your, your book is not entitled A Manifesto, and I'm, I'm guilty of, of uh, presuming to write a libertarian manifesto, but um, you, you very specifically call it the conservative sensibility. Um, what, in your mind, is the conservative sensibility? By sensibility, I mean more than an attitude, but less than an agenda. I'm not so much interested in teaching people what to think as how to think. How a conservative sensibility responds to the flux of events to the sense of openness. Virginia Prestrell, who I'm sure you're yes. uh, an admirer of, uh, <clears throat> said that the, the story of the Bible reduced to one sentence is God created man and woman and promptly lost control of events. The conservative sensibility relishes the loss of control, the sense that the future is open. And this is where American conservatism differs so markedly from European conservatism, which European conservatism was born to buttress orders and hierarchies under assault. American conservatism, it seems to me, its particular role now is to reconcile Americans to, to make them feel the exhilaration of an open, fluid future to suggest that nothing lasts the basic conservative insight, and B, that's a good thing, because uh, we, we want a, a future that is full of surprises. It's an interesting definition <clears throat> of, of conservatism, and I, I feel like uh, liberalism in the classical sense or classical liberalism that, that you just mentioned is, is probably a better uh, brand, but, but I suspect you're trying to rehabilitate the word, but I'm thinking of Hayek's famous essay, why, Why I'm, I'm not, not a conservative. conservative. Yeah, the, the last chapter, if you will, of the Constitution of Liberty. Yeah, and he, of, he of course, is trying to figure out what the word is and, and you know, the opening uh, uh, sentences. He, he worries about the word libertarian well, that, because is it's a, good, a contrived word. The Austrian Hayek could have said, I am an American conservative. Yeah. Uh, and we'd have said, welcome aboard. Yeah. And he, he, you know, he's he's talking about European conservatism yeah. and, and trying to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I call it beautiful chaos because it's it's yes. not just chaotic. It's of course it's the process by which we we create things and solve problems mm -hmm. and 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 take responsibility in our communities. And I and it, well, you know, one of the themes of your book is is that um, you know libertarians need conservatives because we don't. Um, we, we don't sort of respect enough the, the, the cultural norms that, that hold everything together. Um, talk about that. Well, libertarians presume a large stock of social capital. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that capitalism doesn't just make us better off, which it manifestly does. It makes us better 
because it actually helps replenish that stock by enforcing certain stern virtues, what Margaret Thatcher called, yeah. called Victorian virtues. But thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, all of that, uh, it makes it reinforces individualism, which is under assault philosophically and institutionally everywhere. You know, honestly, your your version of conservatism, which which I feel may be a minority view today, hopefully not, but in my version of Hayekian libertarianism, they they kind of sound like the same thing. They're very they're very similar. Um, I'm a libertarian-ish, a, a soft libertarian. I simply simply believe that before the government interferes with the freedom of the individual or two or more individuals contracting together consensually, the government ought to have a good reason and ought to say what it is. And that's why I'm for, in the chapter I have on the ju judicial supervision of democracy, I'm, for, I'm against the idea of judicial deference to majoritarian institutions. Rather, uh, I'm in favor of engaged judiciary vigorously uh, enforcing the fact that America is about a condition, liberty, not a process, majority rule. Yeah, and you're also pretty tough on on Congress's abdication of its responsibility of executive oversight. The sainted Madison, and I yield to no one in my respect for James Madison, the two Princetonians at war in American thought, Madison of class of 1771 and Thomas, Tommy Wilson, as he was known at, at Princeton of 1879 class. The one mistake Madison made, and there's no way he can be faulted for it, he couldn't anticipate the emergence of the modern Leviathan. He said in one of the Federalist Papers that you will see under popular government always power being sucked into the impetuous vortex of the legislature. Well, for 80 years now, Congress has all too willingly spun off its powers because doing so, it spins off accountability and responsibility and all the rest. The recipient of these have been the presidents. Congresses of both parties have been guilty. Presidents of both parties have willingly received the power. But what this does is it short circuits the Newtonian beauty of the uh, equilibrium that Madison tried to create between rivalrous institutions. One of the problems is that in the 1790s, something the founders had neither anticipated nor desired a decade earlier, political parties quickly emerged. And today we have uh, people in Congress thinking of themselves as team players. They are teammates with the president, inevitably subordinate, inevitably supine teammates. And so the entire constitutional architecture today needs restored by reestablishing congressional supremacy. Conservatives once understood this. In the early post-war period, as conservatism began its intellectual and institutional ascendancy, <clears throat> the, one of the canonical texts was James Burnham's Congress and the American Tradition. Uh, conservatives understood that Ro Teddy Roosevelt Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, who came to Washington to be assistant secretary for Woodrow Wilson, Lyndon Johnson, who came to Washington to work in Wood Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and was the only president to serve his entire adult life in Washington, that these strong executives had been engines of the growth of government. Then, in 1981, 
conservatives began to have the heady experience of Ronald Reagan and somewhat fell in love with executive power. So the, uh, the, the time we have left, I, I, think, I think the most important chapter in this book, and you, you may disagree, but culture and opportunity, um, there's some stuff in here that I think points us to where we go here because I, I mean, we're, we're both uh, a little bit politically homeless right now, uh, libertarians and, and the brand of conservative that you're talking about. Um, the, the only four members of Congress off the top of my head that, that have actually kept that commitment from the Tea Party days to hold the executive in check, uh, Mike Lee, Rand Paul, Justin Amash, and Thomas Massey. Uh, maybe there's a couple more in there, but unfortunately I could probably count them on. They're in the closet. Um, and every time they, they criticize their president, they get in hot water. Um, but the, the, the entire ethos of the Tea Party was was primarily about abuse of executive power and but we're in the we're in this process where where i think i think maybe almost everybody is politically homeless because the two tribes the 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 red tribe and the blue tribe seem to be getting smaller and seem to be focused on identity based on what they oppose but there's a there's a section in here um and everyone should read this starting on around page 245 where you you talk about the, the success of capitalism or the market process or, or whatever we call this, this, this discovery and creative process that makes people more wealthy, that um, has created a problem for us because now people don't really worry about whether or not they're going to eat. They don't really worry about where, yeah. they're, where they're going to sleep at night. Um, that The world, by all accounts, including the World Bank, is, is now um, in, been lifted out of poverty um, by capitalism so we worry about other stuff. We worry about yes. about purpose and meaning. And and when you're talking about this, and I, I agree, I, and I think there's a profound strategic direction in here, but uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, we can't possibly do a podcast without mentioning her because she's the it girl. We'll try. We could try. <laughs> but she talks about dignity. And, and she may be onto something there in terms of at least what people are looking for today. Talk about, talk about this, this part of the book and, and where you see that going. I think the, uh, <clears throat> the best Democratic candidate for 2020 would have been Sherrod Brown of Ohio, whose whole theme is the dignity of labor. He's a man of the left, proud progressive, all of that. But he does understand that there is an ache somewhere in uh, a large portion of the American working classes and lower middle classes, an ache that feels disrespected. Never mind what's happened to the automobile industry in northeastern Ohio or the steel industry in the Monongahela Valley of southwestern Pennsylvania. That's not new. What is new is the sense that not only have they lost material well-being, they've lost standing. They are looked down upon by those who are above them. People are, people are Americans are perfectly fine with people getting rich, but they don't want to be condescended to. And I think that's something that conservatives have to find a way to address. So we, we deal with, with um, our personal identities and, and, you know, personally, I live a fairly conservative life, um, but, but my, my interaction with other people, I would, I would call myself quite tolerant. And, and to me, that's a, it's a libertarian thing. It's not acceptance. It's tolerance, and 
and I would I would love to choose to live my life the way that I want to live it, which 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 in modern politics is sort of weird. I'm, I'm but Americans are good at that. What we've learned from the last 60, 50 years of American life is how malleable American opinion is in the best way. My the example I favor is go to a Southeast Conference football game, Alabama against Mississippi. And out there in a striped shirt is the head referee, and he's African-American, and he's bossing everyone around, imposing penalties, ordering people hither and yon at what is most important in the Deep South, which is college football. I mean, you have to be exhilarated and cheerful about the ability of Americans to see the light. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a quintessentially American story. And so I, I wonder if that's not... The, the path forward um, because the story you just told is nobody even notices that that's special. Of course. It's, it's not spectacular. It's just another day at the game. Um, but in, in this world of identity politics, and, and I'm going to use the word libertarian, I, I feel like the, the sales pitch to young people who are not in one of these, these tribes is got to be, unfortunately, I'm going to accept this left-right thing and just say it, it's in the middle. Right. where we, we sort of tolerate people's differences and, and get on with our own lives. Which, what is your, like, you, you've written this book. Um, it, is, it is a manifesto in the sense that, that you want presumably young people to, to read this and, and try to understand yeah. what a conservative is. What's, what's the sales pitch to someone that's 20 years old buying this at Powell's Books in Portland, Oregon? <laughs> Not my target demographic, <laughs> basically, but uh, my sales pitch would be uh, the exhilaration of being uh, in an open society and the fact that, in, to use Karl Popper's terms, the open society has its enemies and they're always with us. He traced it all the way back to Plato and through Marx and Hegel, but they're always uh, with us, people who think they can design the future, people who think that history with, is a proper noun with a capital H that it's unfolding by iron logic to which we have to conform ourselves. They're always with us. And that uh, if, if you really want to prosper, and a, a lot of young people uh, coming of age into the job market after the 2008 Great Recession, uh, for them prospering is not a given. Uh, then you ought to understand the enormous fecundity of freedom. Uh, and, you, you know, aren't all these young people sympathetic to socialism? They have no clue what socialism is. To them, socialism is, means sociability. It means everyone being nice to everybody. Yeah. Um, actually, what socialism means is more government. See, Elizabeth Warren has a firm grip on a half of a point. She says... This enormous government we have, busy allocating wealth and opportunity, has become the plaything of interest groups, of factions that know how to capture it. Uh, intense, compact, organized, articulate, confident, and well-lawyered factions manipulate the government. There is a reason why five of the ten richest counties in the United States by per capita income are in the Washington area. We don't make anything but trouble and laws. We have no natural resources. But we dispose of trillions of dollars. That's, she's right about that. Then she says, ha, ah, the solution is to make this intrusive government much bigger, much more intrusive, on the assumption that I guess that it's going to become disinterested. And we're all the way back to the Bismarckian state. Yeah. Well, 
someone should sit her down over a weekend and say, you fancy yourself an intellectual, you Harvard uh, faculty member. Read James Buchanan, please, on public choice theory, which says simply, I'm balderizing it a bit, that people in the private sector try to maximize something, usually income. People in the public sector are exactly the same way. They try to maximize something even more dangerous, much more dangerous, which is power, because it's power over you. And if you make this argument to millennials, I think they will say, yeah, we've been to the Department of Motor Vehicles. We've been to the post office. Um, we know that if you call a pizza and call an ambulance, the pizza is going to get here first. Uh, I, think th I think they are a receptive audience. Thank you so much. The Conservative Sensibility by George Will. I, I actually read this book. This is a substantial piece of work here, and it took you about three years to, to write. Is that is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah, that's. I don't think I could write this in three years. I think it would take me longer. You have time for me to tell a story for yes. you? Yes. Well, okay. Famous story. Margaret Thatcher, after she's elected uh, head of the Parliamentary Conservative Party, but before she's prime minister, is at a meeting of her caucus. And someone's up there, and he's nattering on about the beauties of centrism and all the rest. She reaches into her capacious and justly famous handbag pulls out a copy of Hayek's The Constitution of Liberty, slams it on the desk and says, this is what we believe. Uh, my dream is that someday a president picks up the conservative sensibility, slams it on the desk in the Oval Office and says, this is what we believe. I don't know if you noticed the helicopters passing over top of us, but this is perhaps the current president <laughs> trying to disrupt this conversation who is noticeably absent in mention in this book. And I the, the thing I like about this book, you do mention Barack Obama and Elizabeth Warren uh, briefly, but but generally speaking, you don't cloud your story with the push and pull of the politics this of the This is moment. not a Washington book. This yeah. is a book I hope can and will be read 20 years from now. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.